Grandpa, the boy said, what's that doing here? He was pointing to a small watercolor painting in a, in a plain black frame on the far side of the room. Just moments before, the two had walked into the first of two large rooms in the museum. The older man, tall and gray and distinguished, wore charcoal gray slacks, a light blue shirt with a blue pattern ascot, and a navy blue blazer. The boy, tall for his age as well, was also well-dressed, but instead of a blazer, wore a navy blue v-neck cashmere sweater over his Oxford button-down, uh, cloth button-down shirt. The family resemblance was obvious even before the boy dressed the older man as his grandfather. The walls of the room were covered with a series of paintings clearly created by the same hand. The style was arresting. Large canvases with bold primary colors, both mostly prominent, prominently yellows, blues, and reds, depicting a series of biblical scenes. The boy recognized some of the subjects, Moses and the burning bush, Peter denying Jesus, and Jesus blessing a young girl and her baby brother. But others, well, they were unfamiliar. Jeremiah looking up out of what looked like a swimming pool, and Jesus engaged in an animated conversation with a very short, stout man the boy later learned was named Zacchaeus. What made the paintings unique, confusing some and offending others, is that every scene was set somewhere in New York City with the characters in everyday clothing, like jeans and a T-shirt, Brooks Brothers suits, designer dresses, police uniforms, or doctor scrubs. The scenes included cops and firefighters, Wall Street bankers and ER docs, construction workers, desk clerks, and hotel maids. The full range of people a typical New Yorker might see in the course of a week. Some of Robert Logan's critics called his work disrespectful and irreverent, while others praised its accessibility. It was true. Logan's Jesus looked more like a middle school math teacher than an ancient Jewish mystic. But over time, many warmed to what his fans saw as an attempt to make these stories come to life. Modern life, that is. For years, his paintings attracted attention and occasional praise. But Logan's work had never quite been accepted in the highest circles of the contemporary art world. Some dismissed it because of the religious themes, but for others, the hesitation was more practical. He stubbornly refused to produce small paintings of the sort connoisseurs typically bought for their Upper West Side apartments. His canvases were measured in feet, not inches, and typical were the complex scenes he painted on canvases the size of a sheet of plywood or even larger. All this meant that Robert never made much money. If he hadn't married well, his wife Elizabeth was a doctor at Presbyterian Hospital, he would have starved. But she loved him and had been endlessly tolerant even when he brought home next to nothing to pay the family bills. She loved his work and respected the tenacious work ethic represented in more than 200 canvases the gallery had to choose from when they picked out the 25 selected to represent his life's work. The small painting that Thomas, the artist's grandson, had pointed out was hanging by the opening that led to the second of the two rooms in that part of the gallery. The boy ignored the chronological arrangement of the exhibit, Old Testament stories in the first room and New Testament in the second, and ran past the large, bold paintings hanging from all four sides in the first room to this small, inconspicuous image. Set off by a mat, the painting itself measured just 10 inches by 14 inches. The top right corner was marred by a thin, rounded brown stain, which Thomas later learned came from the bottom of his grandfather's coffee cup after a wait waitress had 
carelessly refilled his mug in a diner. This was not the first time the boy had seen this painting. His grandmother brought it out and hung it each Christmas in the Greenwich Village apartment she and Robert had lived in for most of their married life. The boy loved it from the time he was young, frequently asking and sometimes demanding that it be taken off the wall so he could get a closer look. He was fascinated with the complex scene, drawn in black ink then filled in with bright colors, watercolors. It showed a view from Central Park from the vantage point of Columbus Circle, but this was no simple landscape. And from central, the Central Park setting meant nothing to the boy then or now. What Thomas found mesmerizing were the characters, human and animal, that filled the painting. At the center was a small tent lit by a campfire, in front of which a young mother sat in a metal lawn chair, gazing down at her infant son. Behind her, looking a bit bewildered, was her husband, a 20-something man with a close-cropped beard, wearing Carhartt work clothes, his hard hat on the ground toward the back of the tent. To one side stood a doctor, her white lab coat peeking out from a knee-length down coat. And behind her were a couple of cops and a firefighter. On the other side, with necks craned to see into the tent, were some foreign guys in expensive suits and Burberry coats, wearing, holding boxes with names like Tiffany and Rolex on the outside. And in front were a couple of dog walkers with a dozen dogs all pulling on their leashes to get a look at the baby in the young woman's arms. And finally, there was a small ensemble of Broadway singers who'd been drawn into the scene after their last performance of the day. At 10 years old, Thomas still hadn't lost the curiosity that had him looking again for details in the painting he might previously have missed. Last Christmas, it had been the pigeon perched on top of a light pole, and this time, even if he didn't get the humor, it was the donut he spotted in the hand of one of the cops. His grandfather's version of the nativity so shaped Thomas's perspective of the events of that first Christmas that when he was younger, his parents wondered if he would ever understand that Jesus hadn't been born in the 1970s. After a minute or so spent looking at this unusual nativity painting, the boy asked, Grandpa, when did you paint that? Robert Logan quickly answered, in 1972. Why? asked his grandson. Well, he said, pausing for a moment, it's a long story. And then he motioned to the center of the room where a museum bench beckoned. And they both sat, the boy swinging his legs back and forth while he stared ahead at the small painting. The details were no longer visible, but he kept the image in view while he listened to his grandfather's story. Robert told Thomas that he moved to New York City because he wanted to be an artist. He got a job waiting tables, painting during the mornings and afternoons between his lunchtime and evening shifts at the restaurant. Did you sell anything, the boy asked? A few, he told him, but not enough to make a living. He'd been in New York City for a couple of years when his father, the boy's great-grandfather, died the week before Thanksgiving. How, the boy asked, and he knew, and, and Robert knew, he wasn't asking out of insensitivity, but curiosity, and told him about the heart attack that left him without any immediate family members. The boy was quiet for a moment and then said, is that when you painted the painting? Well, yes, although a couple of weeks later. And then he told the boy about the lonely train ride back to New York City from his small western Pennsylvania hometown. I went back to work, he said, and tried to paint, but I was really sad, about as low as I'd ever been. 
And then he told Thomas that on Christmas Eve, he was sitting alone in the apartment. The restaurant was closed, and by late afternoon, it was already getting dark outside. When he noticed, it had started to snow. So he put on his coat and decided to go out for a walk. He'd been walking for more than an hour, and his shoes were soaked, his feet were cold, when he saw the diner. He didn't quite know how to describe to the boy how he felt drawn to the place by the light spilling out from the big picture window onto the sidewalk, about how in later years he thought of it as his star in the east. But he did tell him that he suddenly realized he was hungry. But because he only had a few dollars in his pocket, he had to look at the menu in the window to see if he could afford dinner. How much was it? Thomas asked. I don't remember exactly, but the daily specials were too expensive. But they had this breakfast special, all-day breakfast special, called the All-American for $1.99. Two eggs, bacon or sausage, hash browns and toast, or a short stack of pancakes. It even included coffee. I was so hungry, I opened the door and went in. Breakfast for dinner? The boy asked. Yes, Robert answered. Sounds good, doesn't it? To which Thomas nodded enthusiastically. Robert's mind drifted back to the moment he had stepped into the diner. The room felt cozy. Two rows of booths lined the wall with a single row of tables down the center, each covered with a red gingham tablecloth. The decor was sparse, but it was warm and comfortable. Since it was one of the few places open on Christmas Eve, it was reasonably busy. But an elderly couple were vacating a booth about midway down the left-hand side, and since no one else was waiting, the waitress let Robert have it. She quickly cleared away the dishes, wiped off the table, and he sat down. Impatient by how slowly his grandfather was getting on with the story about the picture, Thomas asked, so what does breakfast for dinner have to do with the picture? Pointing his finger at the framed image on the opposite wall. Because that's where I met Davy. Davy, he repeated, who's he? Robert then told Thomas about the boy he saw sitting with his mother in the booth across the aisle. He was talking nonstop, and his mother was doing her best to keep up, but he barely took breath between sentences. When my food came, I, stopped, I started eating, and that's when he suddenly appeared. Hey, mister, he said, what you doing? He had light brown curly hair, brown eyes, and a bright face. But before he could even think of a reasonable answer, the boy asked, why are you eating alone? Another tough question, but he quickly bailed me out when he said, why don't you come eat with us? Mom, he said a bit more loudly than necessary, can this man eat with us? What was she supposed to say? Sure, Davy, she said, if he wants to. A minute later, after he slid in beside his mother, I would, he, uh, Robert was seated in on the other side of the table, his food and coffee cup in front of him. Getting right to it, the boy asked, is your wife working tonight? Before he could tell him he wasn't married, he said, my dad has to work at the hospital tonight. Mom said I could stay up until he gets off at midnight. This place stays all open. That's why we're here. By the way, do you know it's Christmas morning tomorrow? Yes, he told him. He soon learned that the boy's father was a resident at the hospital nearby. It was clear he was so excited for Christmas that his mom knew he'd, she'd never get him to sleep if they were at home, so decided to kill some time by taking him to the diner. He asked Robert if he liked chopped chip pancakes, but before listening for an answer, told him that they were his favorite. And then he asked, what do you do? Well, I'm an artist, Robert answered, but I also work at a restaurant. Do you draw pictures, he asked. Paint, he said. Cool, he said. 
What do you paint pictures of? It was a hard question to answer, since at that point, Robert was still trying to find his artistic voice. But Davy didn't wait for an answer and was on to the next question. Have you heard the Christmas story? Robert hesitated and then said yes, although it had been some time since he had reviewed the familiar tale. You see, Mary, he said, pausing. That's my mom's name, too, he looked up, smiling into his mother's face. Mary was engaged to a man named Joseph. That's my dad's name, he added with great pride. So why didn't they name you Jesus, Robert said playfully. That's silly, he said. There's only one Jesus. And then he launched back into the story. So an angel went to Mary and scared her just a little bit. He didn't mean to, but he was dressed all in white, glowing and with a halo and wings, stuff we don't normally see, so she was afraid. By now, Robert was finished with his breakfast. That is, except the pancakes. And so he pushed the plate to one side, and the waitress took the other plate away and filled his coffee cup. She splashed just a little bit on the table, and when he set the cup back on the paper placemat in front of him, it left a thin brown stain. Absent-mindedly, Robert pulled a pen from his pocket and started to draw on the paper placemat in front of him. Then Davy continued. The angel told her that she was going to have a baby. That kind of freaked her out because she wasn't married yet, but he told her not to worry about that either, that God would take care of her. On the placemat in front of him, Robert had quickly drawn a four-person tent with a large zip-open door. A couple of lumpy sleeping bags lay on the floor of the tent. An Eglo cooler was at the back, a grocery bag on top with a package of Pampers poking out the top of the bag. Do you know what happens next? Davy asked. But before waiting for an answer, he said, an angel went to see Joseph and scared him too. He told him the same thing, that Mary was going to have a baby. He told Joseph that they should name him Jesus, not Joseph or David or any other name. And Joseph was cool with that. By now, Robert had added several of the characters that Davy had mentioned, and several others he knew were still to come in the story. He had Mary seated in the lawn chair in front of the tent, baby Jesus wrapped in a blanket someone had given her, with Joseph right behind her, a big grin on his face. So Davy continued, This mean guy told Mary and Joseph they had to take a trip to pay their taxes, and they had to do it right then. He wouldn't even let them wait a few weeks till the baby was born. Wasn't that mean? Robert nodded and drew a big grumpy man, look, guy looking, uh, standing in the back of the trees behind the tent. He was dressed in a dark suit and had a gold ring on his pinky finger of his right hand. Again, without waiting for an answer, Davy went on. So Mary and Joseph had to take this really long trip, I think it took them 20 hours or so, or something like that, to Bethlehem town. Mary rode a donkey and Joseph walked. His feet were sore when they finally got there, and I bet her bottom was... Before he could finish the sentence, his mother quickly said, Davy, and he got the hint and moved on. On the right side of the picture, Robert had drawn the front end of an ancient Ford Taurus parked illegally near the growing crowd of onlookers. When they got to the place, he said, they started looking for a place to stay, but everything was taken. Everyone was mean to them until one guy told them they could stay in a stable with some animals. It was then that Robert added the dog walkers with the assortment of hounds in their charge the pigeon on the light pole, and a mouse making him his way up the guy line of the tent. It was only then that Davy noticed what Robert was doing. What are you drawing, he asked. Your story, Robert answered. But there's a car in it, he said. They didn't have cars back then. And no one wore jeans then either. They wore robes. Jeans weren't invented until Elvis was born. 
How it was Davy associated Elvis and Jeans, he didn't know, but he told Davy, I'm just imagining what it would look like if your story happened today. Oh, he said, looking over a few of the details in the picture, trying to figure out what went with what. But just as quickly, he went back to telling his story. So in the middle of the night, Mary had her baby. There were sheep and goats and cows and chickens and pigs all around the baby. Robert didn't have the heart to tell him that there probably wouldn't have been any pigs. But he did add a cat to the picture, back by the igloo cooler in the back of the tent. Glancing at the picture again, Davy noticed the cat. We used to have a cat, he said, but he died. And then he asked, do you know what happened next? Searching back to his long-ignored Sunday school memory bank, Robert remembered what came next, the shepherds. But before he could get a word out, Davy said, the shepherds. And one of the angels came to tell them about the baby. Then some other angels came and gave a concert. I think some of them were flying around. That's when Robert added his little chorus of Broadway singers to his drawing. In his picture, they weren't flying, but a couple of them on the back were on tiptoes so they could see the baby while they sang. What's next, Robert asked, vaguely remembering the lines from the carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. The wise men, Davy said, looking at his mother to make sure he was on the right track. She nodded yes, and he continued. They came, he began, from the east coast. This star moved through the sky and led them right to Jesus. By now, Robert had sketched in the three businessmen in their Burberry coats, and they brought him some presents. One of them even brought him a bag of gold money. And with that, Robert added a small, heavy bag in the left hand of the nearest businessman. Now that he was done with his story, Davy looked more closely at Robert's drawing. Struggling to recognize everything upside down, he slid down from his seat, came out and around to Robert's side, and sat down beside him. And Robert explained that the doctor just happened to be walking by when Mary's baby came, and that he had added the cops and the firefighter because they worked nights just like the shepherds did, and that soon after the moment depicted in the painting, or the picture, the cops noticed the grumpy bald guy hiding in the trees the one with the gold pinky ring, and they chased him, but he had too big a head start and got away. While the two of them sat going over the drawing, Robert pulled out a small watercolor paint set and began to color in the drawing. He used bright primary colors, bringing the image quickly to life. He seemed pleased, and again, Robert, uh, Davy returned to his mother's side, this time moving on to talking about what he was hoping for from Santa on Christmas morning. But as the time grew later and closer to 10 o'clock, he started to yawn, and eventually he leaned into his mother and fell asleep. Robert and Mary talked for just a short time, but eventually Robert knew it was time to go. He thanked her for her generosity in sharing Davy for the evening. I needed this, he said. This evening has been a gift. And with that, he put on his coat and made his way out the door. He went south and a little bit east until he came to a large church. The sign outside announced an 11 p.m. midnight Christmas service, and glancing at his watch, he saw he was just in time. And while he hadn't been in a church building in years, Robert quickly made his way into the warm sanctuary, a place that felt strangely like home. When Robert finished telling Thomas the story about the painting, he asked his grandfather, why didn't you give Davy the picture? I've thought about that a lot over the years. The truth is that neither he nor his mother asked for it, and it didn't occur to me until several days later. It's possible that later he wished he had it, but it's also possible that it would have meant little to him. 
Regardless, I'm grateful he didn't ask. I think God knew that I needed it more than he did. What he couldn't adequately convey to his 10-year-old grandson was the profound impact that that evening had had on him. The darkness that had so weighed him down in the, uh, that night began to lift. Now, it would be weeks, even months, before it would lift completely. But that evening, he began once again to reclaim his sense of wonder. When the light began to shine in his soul again, and the words the angel spoke to the shepherds in Davy's story hit home, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Within weeks, Robert began painting the work that would define his career. He began to read his previously neglected Bible, and the stories began to jump off the page. And one by one, he began to paint what he saw. Taking the characters and scenes, he translated them into the reality of everyday life. And slowly, decades after he started this artistic path, some began to notice and appreciate what he was doing. The exhibit of his work would open in a few days. A year earlier, an art book publisher had negotiated an agreement to produce a coffee table book of a larger selection of his paintings, and boxes of the books were stacked in the museum's gift shop, ready for any who were interested in his interpretations of the biblical stories. Grandpa, Thomas said, interrupting his grandfather's thoughts, someday, could I have this painting of Jesus and his friends? I like your big paintings too, but I don't think they'd fit in my room. Yes, you can, Robert said, laughing. I'd love for you to have it. The end. Let's pray. Father, many of us are here today full of joy. And the words the angel said to the shepherds have a feeling as fresh and as real as they've ever had. The good news of the birth of Jesus that's for us. The great news of great joy that is for all people. Father, for others, this may be a difficult day, either because of challenges in our lives or because of spiritual turmoil. Father, bring the light of Christmas into our hearts today. May we know, perhaps for the first time, the truth of the Christmas story, that today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to us. He is Christ the Lord. Father, this Christmas, bring us home to you. May we put our faith and trust in you, remembering that the baby born so many years ago would one day go to the cross where he would die for our sins and be raised again as our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. We pray this in his name.